Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, our series on the Best Picture nominees from 2007. 2007 movies, 2008 ceremony, distinction I'm tired of making. This is the third film in the series where we're discussing Michael Clayton. Hell yes! Can I get a hell yes in the chat? Hell yes! Michael Clayton. I am elated. Elated to be talking about Michael Clayton. Holy crap. Uh, TJ, well, I just I just asked you guys both off mic if you'd seen this much before uh, since 2008. TJ, have you seen this much since 2008? Uh, I first saw it in 07. Um, when it came out, right. I went to yes. the theater uh, by myself, which is not a sad thing to do. And I do it all the time. Same. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, but I, I was I was in high school, so like Friday night, people were going to football games, and I was like driving to the O'Fallon 15 Cine to watch Michael Clayton by myself at like. 5 30 p.m <laughs> that's and funny. and yeah i know everybody's jealous of me right now uh i thought then i at the time watched the ebert and roper show and yeah. not a fan of really either of them but roper i thought was worse and roper loved this movie said it was like a masterpiece instant classic and i was like eh, let's 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 see about that dicky um i really like i believe ebert also gave it four stars did he i think so uh i really liked it yeah. on first viewing but as a 17-year-old, there were things that were really lost on me, and I found stretches of it a little bit like slower, drier, boring. And to me, the stuff that I liked at the time was kind of uh, like a trailer greatest hits sort of thing in the movie. Um, I think I've seen it twice since then. Like maybe every four-ish years, I would go back to it. And then, of course, I watched it this past week. So it was probably my fourth or fifth time seeing it. And it gets better each time. I completely agree. Uh, I actually had a similar experience i think where i saw it when i was like you know 17 18 when it came out just because i was you know that was the this was the first year where i said i need to see all these best picture nominated movies so i did and i enjoyed it a lot but an awful an awful lot was lost on me and i remember having a conversation with um a classmate of ours uh kingsley ulaka shout out to kingsley oh there you go. yeah yeah he was awesome yeah, good dude. Yeah. yeah that dude's cool um, really smart too. And he was oh, yeah. he was telling he was talking he was talking to me about how struck he was by the scene where Michael gets out and looks at the horses and how, how he thought it was like one of the most beautiful scenes he'd ever seen in a movie. And I was like, really? You thought so? Because I did that kind of that kind of that scene just kind of passed right over me without much second thought. And like in hindsight, I'm like, God, you were an idiot when you were 17 <laughs> if you can like watch the horse scene and not give it a second thought. Or, um, or and thank God for, for Kingsley for pointing out to me. What we've learned is that even at age 17, Kingsley was a serious film person. That's right. He was. That's right. And I'm sure he still is, even though I haven't talked to him in 15 years. But, <laughs> um, and then I didn't see this again until a few months ago. I think. Like I, I, I think in like you know. I think a few months ago I was on a flight and I just downloaded this onto my iPad and I, I watched it on my flight to Chicago and then on the flight home I read the screenplay and then watched it a second time mm. and then I watched it again this week so I've watched it three times in the last two three months um, and holy crap you're right it gets so much better every time you watch it um, I watched it this afternoon and I, I was texting you guys I was watching it I just I was just so uh, just thrilled watching it even though I'd seen it twice in the last two months I just it was a it was a real treat. Um, how about you, Ken? When did you first see it, and have you have you watched it much since, since it came out? So I'm I'm in I'm in the same boat. I saw it when it came out, so way back in 2007, and then I believe we watched. I don't did we watch this together? I don't recall if we watched this together ahead of the Oscars uh, after school have? one day. I don't remember. I don't know. I saw this. I did see this though after it had been in theaters. I saw it again 
uh, in two, early 2008. I do remember that. I saw it twice. Um, both times on those first watches, uh, a lot there's a lot of stuff in this film that escaped me on first watch and even second watch. Um, we'll get into it, but um, there the book that plays a central uh, a central part of the plot point mm-hmm. of the film, Realm um, of Conquest. Exactly, Realm of Conquest. I uh, I it kind of went over my head. I didn't really pay as close attention to it, and didn't factor it into my own analysis and viewing of the film. Uh, however, thankfully, because even at that time I was already thinking about possibly going to law school. And this is, if if nothing else, it's one of the all-time great legal legal movies. And my dad uh, heard me talk about how I, I really appreciated this film. And so I got this either for my birthday in 2008 or Christmas 2008. I don't remember which, but I've had a copy of this movie since that year. And I've probably revisited it, yeah, every few years. Every, you know, at least every, I'd say on average every four years, probably like TJ. That sounds about right. And yeah, every time you watch it, it's just like another delicious nugget. You're just like, oh, what am I gonna, what am I gonna pick up on this time that I didn't the last time? Yeah, two things to follow up on what uh, Kenneth said there. It struck me this time as well. I took five and a half pages of notes. Um, how how kind <laughs> of um, literary it is, not necessarily with allusions, but just that there's um, so many details that echo and refer back to certain things, and there's themes that are developed and underscored and sort of mirrored and echoed across so that keeping a running list of of details that you're like that seems like it's important but I don't really know why yet was was really constructive mm. for me something I wanted to ask Ken because one of the things I appreciated about this film this time as well is I, I've seen I've seen a lot of movies and television shows with teachers in it or classroom environments and as a teacher myself, they like never get it right. You know, the students are always like sitting there listening and like and looking at them. And I'm like, actually, in real life, they're on their phones. And then when the teacher's like, "There's there will be a test or whatever," they're like, "Ah, oh, do we have to? Like, it's just for a great like that's what real life is like, and it's never like that in movies." This uh, I know nothing about law, but when I was watching it, I was like, "This seems it feels authentic," and it also is. What's terrifying about that is it reminds me that. There are certain corners of like the world and the country where the shadiest shit goes down and we have no idea mm. the mechanisms that are really working behind certain things. Um, Ken, without incriminating yourself in any sort of class action lawsuits or criminal doings, uh, did, did you find that this had kind of an air of authenticity to it as far as legality goes? So number one, one of my favorite things about this film is it it's it's a it's a i guess it falls in you could argue it's a courtroom drama that never enters a courtroom it's that yeah. kind of legal movie uh there there is certainly a gritty reality to the various lawyer characters in this film i mean from the the partners at the uh, kennerbach and and Leiden, uh the law firm itself we're talking the sydney pollock role marty bach um and uh, uh, I think Barry is the other uh, partner that's often yeah. shown. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an asshole, but he knows it. He's yeah, exactly yeah. he's an asshole. Knows it. And the I, the description of Arthur at one point that he's a killer as a litigator. He's, yeah. he's one of the great killer litigators uh, from the New last York. place you want to see me is in court. Exactly. They what are a great line. They are Holy smart. Crap. They're not and they're not evil. They're not villains in this movie. Marty, I think I think encompasses it best. He's not evil, but he is certainly self interested. 
and he knows how they pay the rent. Exactly. Well, that's that's key because yeah. it is business at yeah. the very. Uh, mm-hmm. This is particularly important. He's a managing partner, so obviously there's a business aspect to what he's doing, as opposed to in the courtroom constantly. Uh, he's trying to keep the operations afloat. Um, but all lawyers at some point, certainly like Michael does in this movie, granted not at this level, but you do ask yourself, like, what am I, what am I doing? What am I contributing to society? Because most people go to law school with ideals. They, they have a promise or an idea in mind of what it is that they're going to contribute to society. And at some point in your career, all lawyers, no doubt, have the moment where they have to weigh whether or not they're satisfied with what they're doing, whether they feel just like teaching. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's the same thing, and that is all entirely believable. Now, mm. we can get into it a little bit as to this fixer role. Uh, mm. not I was just going to ask, are, are you your firm's fixer, Ken? No. They're, okay, most firms... Are you a miracle worker? Most, are you a janitor? Most firms don't have this kind of mm. lawyer who's not really... I mean, Michael's not really in a courtroom. I love the fact that his specialty is wills and trust, mm-hmm. and that's got a double yeah. meaning. He's not really sitting down writing people's okay. estate plan. okay. We, we, there's there's a lot of stuff I want to comment yeah. on real quick. Uh, so, uh, Ken, you said it was a great version of a legal thriller, which I agree with. And also, we all three of us have said it rewards rewatch. So I just want to read a few sentences from Roger Ebert's review. Again, his four-star review where he says, quote, I don't know what vast significance Michael Clayton has. It involves deadly pollution, but it, it, is, it isn't a message movie. But I know that it is just about perfect as an exercise in genre. I've seen it twice, and the second time, knowing everything that would happen, I found it just as fascinating because of how well it was all shown happening, uh, which I completely agree with. Um, it's, it's, per, it's, it's a near perfect as, as for what it is, as the genre movie that it is, and um, it definitely rewards rewatch. Oh, uh, my first few watchings were very similar to that, what he said there, where it's like, I'm not really sure what this adds up to. That was my goal this time. And I, I think I have a thesis for what it adds up to. So that's just uh, a tease for later. Okay. You don't, we don't want to do it now? No, I'm going to bury the lead. You, you have to listen to the whole four hours of this to get the good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll do, some, I'll do some background real quick. Um, so this was Tony Gilroy's directorial debut. This was written and directed by Tony Gilroy. Tony Gilroy is an extremely uh, prominent screenwriter before this movie he wrote such films in the 90s as the cutting edge which is not a bad movie uh the devil's advocate he was one of the writers in armageddon proof of life he wrote uh at least in part or in whole all three of the first three uh born identity born supremacy born ultimatum movies um and this was his directorial debut and what a freaking debut it was and um I surround myself with, you know, I, I follow a lot of screenwriters on Twitter, and so I, I kind of immerse myself in that world. I'm fascinated by screenwriters. Nearly every professional screenwriter I follow cites this as, like, one of the best scripts of the 20th, 21st century. Um, it's a basically perfectly written movie, as we were talking off mic. I'm, I'm in awe of how good this script is, and we'll come back to that, I guess. This debuted in Venice in 2007, made for $21.5 million. It made $93 million at the box office. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor for Tom Wilkinson, Best Supporting Actress for Tilda Swinton, Best Original Screenplay for Tony Gilroy, Best Original Score, James Newton Howard. It Of those, it only won Best Supporting Actress for Tilda Swinton. Correct. I think George Clooney and Tom Wilkinson are, are both outstanding in this. Absolutely. And in other years, it would have been great for them had this movie come out in other years, but both of them just ran head on into trains. In their categories, respectively, Dan Day-Lewis and uh, Javier Bardem. And there's nothing to be done about that. <laughs> like, tough beat that they were up against two of the best performances probably ever it's, in their respective categories. In retrospect, there is, there's a certain 
I guess it's nostalgia almost looking back. It feels good that this movie did get recognized as much as it did. The fact that Tom Wilkinson was nominated for playing Arthur Edens is a fantastic feeling when you look back. What I texted you guys as I was watching this earlier is he just, we we hear his voice. His voice opens the movie. It's a voiceover. And I, I think we're led to believe that this is a voiceover from like the scene where he meets with Michael Clayton. But we don't see like the the origins of this voiceover until minute twenty seven. Minute twenty seven, we actually Tom Wilkinson actually enters the movie for real, and he just starts throwing fastballs. And his first scene with uh, opposite George Clooney, who's one of the greatest actors of our generation, could barely keep up because Tom Wilkinson is just throwing heat and throwing heat. And I am Sheev, the god of death. And oh my god, he's so good. Uh, I I can't get over it. And again, like really really tough beat that he's up against Javier Bardem because um wow. But uh, Ken, something you just kind of vaguely alluded to, it's, it's a good thing this was recognized as much as it was. Um, one thing that struck me watching this, you know, the last few months is like, God, I miss movies like this. And, and movies like this aren't around anymore, basically. You know, uh, smart movies for adults with movie stars. And it, it, it sucks that 15 years later, this is such a rarity. You know, if this movie came out today, if this movie came out today, it'd be held up as the greatest, as, as God's gift to humanity, I think. And it, it, it still kind of is, <laughs> but like, uh, we just don't see this stuff anymore. And it feels weird that it's only been 15 years, but this this kind of movie's gone. I think that was part of the discourse in 07 as well, was like, oh, it's it's a 70s thriller. It's the type of movie that Sidney Pollack mm-hmm. used to make. Uh, they don't make movies like that anymore. And um, I think your point is, is accurate, that... If I don't think this gets made now, if it gets made now, it's a limited series, um, or it's, yes, yes, it is, or it's like a um, you know a Netflix film or a Hulu original or something like that, you know. Which is which is unfortunate because the strength of this film, as as Josh just alluded to, it's an adult film. It's a slow burn, propulsive film. That is also concise. It doesn't waste a single moment of its play. It, Just the, to be clear, the, by adult film, we mean uh, a film for adults, not pornography. Correct. Yes, that's correct. If this were a limited series, then like the Dennis O'Hare one scene would be like a full episode where he's got to clean up after Dennis O'Hare. And like, I love that it's like a four minute conversation in Dennis O'Hare's kitchen. And it's explosive, which, though. It's this it, is it is so so good. It's it's another. It's a it says so much about the writing. That you've got these characters who flit in and out very briefly. And the film is obviously following George Clooney. But he, and and also kudos to Clooney, he's so generous with his screen time. He's in all of these scenes and giving people like Dennis O'Hare in that one scene, just the opportunity to just let it go. He just, he just. As he does with Wilkinson too. He kind of yes. like is, he he's second fiddle in a lot of scenes he's in. Yes. With Sidney Pollack, with Tom Wilkinson, with Dennis O'Hare. Even with Swinton um, at times. She's, she's, she's got a Swinton, whole, yeah, she's sure. got a whole body performance. It's subtle, but she's, she's acting with every part of her being. And it's subtle, but fantastic. It's just glowing. Speaking of the Dennis O'Hare scene. So screenwriting, screenwriting 101 is, you know, you, you start, but you open with your characters like status quo, right? And like, you kind of show them. Uh, a day in the life of your main character is a common way to begin a movie. And like, this kind of does it twice, which I think is interesting. Like we have, we have a 16 minute prologue of sorts that then it flashes back four days earlier. So like basically we we get 16 minutes of our third act to open the movie. And the scene with Dennis O'Hare, which is uh, in case you don't know who Dennis O'Hare is, he's the guy who 
is a hit and run and lives in Westchester, calls, you know, the firm and they send Michael Clayton up there at two thirty in the morning to talk to him about the hit and run and they get him a lawyer and uh believe me, if there's a line, you're right up front, et cetera. Um, that's like a uh, that that's explaining who Michael Clayton is. You know, it's a, it's a day in his life. And it, it literally is, exp- it's explicitly says miracle worker. That's what he just said on the phone. I'm sending you a miracle worker. And then Michael Clayton says, I'm not a miracle worker. I'm a janitor. That is again, explaining who the character is and what he does and what he's about. And then, you know, we get the, the beautiful horses scene, his car blows up. We flash back four days earlier. And then the movie kind of starts over. And like, we get a second day in the life where he picks up his son uh, we learn about the problems with the bar that he invested in that he's got to sell already. And then we see him on the phone all day. And like that's like a day in the life of Michael Clayton is just like on the phone with people fixing things. He's a lawyer, but he never sees a courtroom because all he does is just like get cases like this hit and run basically thrown at him. And he just makes it all go away. And yet he's he's so uh, sort of absent that he also – he's very bad at listening to people. We see that when he picks up his yeah. son that – um, very much so it's, yeah. it's nodding and uh-huh, uh-huh oh yeah no is that you know and he didn't read the book his son gave him but even on the phone uh very briefly in his office he says oh well how old was the kid and like it's not a kid he's 22 and he was like oh yeah and he, he did what again um so he's he's his heart's not in it he's so experienced that if you throw out the basic it's just basic facts basic information he knows instinctively what to do so he, yeah he doesn't really care about the minutia of every case or every instance that's coming before him he's just you know yeah he's gonna go ahead and do his thing yet again over and over and over again he's just living this monotonous cycle of kind of he seems miserable yeah, yeah. Of, of of kind of pardon me but bullshit that's all he's dealing with all day yeah. he's just cleaning up after it all but I, I bring this up how it kind of has like two openings to illustrate the point that like this movie could have just as easily started at the 16 minute mark where he picks up Henry and then he we learn about the bar that fell through and then we see him go about his day. And then like what ends up being a, close to the half an hour mark could very well be the inciting incident at the 15 minute mark, which is we learn about Tom Wilkinson, uh, Arthur going crazy in the, in the deposition room. But instead, we we start with this 15 minutes where, you know, we see. Uh, Sidney Pollock as Marty Bach, like working through the night to settle this U North case. We get a glimpse of Karen Crowder, uh, Tilda Swinton, well, let's, uh, with her sweaty armpits in the bathroom. Yeah, let's talk about this for a second. The way the film opens with, as you mentioned earlier, Tom Wilkinson's voiceover, and this is this is this is the voice of Arthur, the character of Arthur Eden's having his epiphany and basically reciting this all to Michael, and. So it's telling us that this guy is having a moment where he's just dissatisfied with everything about his life. He's, he has seen the light and he has realized he's wasting his, he's wasting his adult life. It's a manic episode. Yes. And you, you can tell without even knowing he's manic. Meanwhile, he's not on screen. The voiceover is just following this one lone paper pusher. There's a messenger or a guy pushing a cart through a law office, a big, firm office after hours after yeah after nobody hours. he's not passing anybody but as as we go on as the voiceover starts to end he finally arrives at a what is a massive massive boardroom or or meeting room conference room with space. hundreds of people yes and they are yes. they are just it's chaotic in there and the camera's furiously going through papers and documents. Exactly. This is this is this is like zero hour. This is a boardroom of hundreds of attorneys the night before a multi-billion dollar case uh, or trial. 
which is literally what we then find out is happening. Like this is this is zero hour for them. They've got to it's 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 put up or shut up for them. They've got to either settle it or they're going to trial. And so yeah, we get Marty Bach. He's dealing with a reporter on the phone, like Wall Street Journal. Yeah, he is he is literally a guy who's not he's not going to sit for anything right now. He's like he's not going to put up with anything. And then we suddenly when we, we well first you mentioned we meet Karen Crowder. He, he says he says where the f is karen crowder right. and then it cuts it cuts to, to her in the karen bathroom crowder. which is also a fantastic very, shot. very sweaty armpits very which is something that just struck me <laughs> a fantastic shot of her looking like she looks kind of vampiric she looks like really white oh, and yeah. deadly and sickly and she's in the stall and she's just yes as you said she's sweating profusely in this scene and that's how we meet this character she is kind of i mean you'd almost suspect she's just must be as manic as the voiceover that we just heard because she seems to be off it. And then yeah. from there, we're finally introduced to our title character. who's a lawyer, obviously for this firm, but is not there. We're introduced to him via his ID card for the law firm, which is in a bin in a underground poker room in Chinatown or something like that. Yeah. And then we meet Brian Koppelman with a horrible, with a horrible rug. Yes. Yes. <laughs> do, you, do you guys know, do you guys know who Brian Koppelman, Brian Koppelman wrote the movie Rounders. And he's also the creator of the show Billions. I didn't um, know. Yeah, I knew that. This is before that. But I think it's, I, I assume that they put him in this because he wrote Rounders. And so he's like the opposing poker player at this table that Michael Clayton's at, which I think I thought was like a nice nod. So uh, t- to your point, Ken, perfect introduction of Marty Bach, perfect introduction of Karen Crowder, perfect introduction of Arthur without even meeting him, just hearing his voice. Uh, a perfect introduction of how um, dire this situ- this case is with you, North. Right. Um, that they're working through the night to fix. And then a, a great introduction of, of Michael Clayton with his ID card and his phone in a bin and then him in a poker table. Well, he's, yeah, he's on the outside. He's he's not really right. part of this. He's not a lawyer like those he, other people. He's, he's getting a call to go work a hit and run in Westchester for this rich a-hole who pays a retainer every month. they right. got to keep this guy happy so they can keep getting his money. So they said, you know, again, like Michael says, he's a janitor. It's, it's just a, it's a perfect first 10 minutes. And then we get him driving away from Westchester contemplating all this bullshit that he's dealing with and seeing the horses and seeing how free they are. So he gets out to contemplate how not free he is and how free they are. And then his car explodes in the background. And again, the movie could have started at the 15 minute mark. And I, I wonder how many iterations Tony Gilroy, Tony Gilroy went through with the script that maybe it did at some point start with him picking up Henry on page one. And then he decided to put this. I don't, I don't know. It's a perfect. I, I would love to ask him. It is a master. It's a master exercise in writing tension, because you yes. you you preview for the the audience what's coming. So we know now that at some yeah. point, once you get that that four Someone's days, someone's going to want Michael Clayton dead once, at some point in the next four days. Once you yeah. get that four days earlier, suddenly we know everything that we just saw. The voice, the crazy manic voiceover, Karen Crowder in the the stalls, this dire yes. case. They're they're frantically working overnight to settle, and like Michael's everything. car exploding. Yeah. All of that is yet to come. So how did we get there? Oh, it's exciting. God, this this movie is so. So I have the biggest smile on my face if you can't hear it in my voice. <laughs> uh, TJ, got anything on this first 60 minutes? This, uh, you know, f- before we get to the four days earlier, um, you took five pages of notes. What, what in your notes do you have on this on this section? Uh, yeah. So this beginning, you, you guys hit on a lot of, um, you know, the way in which it's introducing certain characters. But I, I also want to talk about the way it's introducing kind of tone and atmosphere. Uh, first, the score is 
very uh, low, lower key, almost underdone, but I think it's perfect because it's propulsive. Yeah. Um, yes. I, I yes. Think the, the score very, is excellent. Very propulsive. Um, uh, Oscar nominated, James Newton Howard. Yeah. And if we look at the content of Arthur's monologue, not just the delivery, but the content yep. of it, he's referring to emerging from, you know, a film or a glaze or having afterbirth, right? That it's a sort of before mm-hmm. death moment. And when when you hear it at the beginning of this completely out of context, he sounds delusional, but he's talking about it as though it's a moment of clarity. I think he used the word um, epiphany. What's interesting about it, I think, is he also says that there's uh, an element of something being like excreted from yes. the butt that's uh, about poison and poison mm-hmm. destroys humanity. Well, what else is in all of this, as we learn later, is, you know, the, the lawsuit is about insecticides, uh, pesticides. Yeah. And what he's describing... This agriculture company. Yeah. Yeah. What he's describing is molting. Uh, he's describing himself yeah. essentially as going through like an insect metamorphosis and realizing that he used to be a parasite. Um, and mm. I think that's that's something that's really interesting, especially with this idea of excreting poison and how that's going to come back with some things I want to talk about a little bit later. But then... Uh, flipping that to what you guys mentioned about Tilda Swinton, um, that's I think what's important about her super sweaty pits is she too is in this this moment of of crisis and excreting. Yes. <laughs> um, and, I like that. Yeah. A, and what both of these things do because we don't know who he is or what the hell he's talking about. We don't know who she is and why she's so damn sweaty. Uh, extracted <laughs> from context, what it gives us that I think is really effective is and. Uh, anxiety with no uh untethered to any sort of trigger and then Mm. what happens there is that's contagious if if the movie Mm. opened with a a kid shooting free throws uh on a basketball court and you know the game's down to the wire and he uh, we're going oh he's nervous about is he going to make this free throw in the game or not right but when it's pulled we're giving context exactly when it's pulled out of said context then it's no longer really about can you relate to well I've never played basketball. It's just pure feeling, um, mm-hmm. and so I think it establishes um, th- th- that paranoia very effectively in the first sixteen minutes as well. And we can come back to this, but the fact that you know after we flash back four days and we get Michael with Henry, we get Michael in the bar, we get Michael at his office being the fixer, then we get our proper instruction to Karen Crowder. Uh, Tilda Swinton, and it's as she's uh, prepping for an interview, and it's not even like an interview; it's more like a a a internal company puff piece, just to, like get to know your new lead counsel, basically. And she's going over the interview questions. Yes. It's it's cross cutting between her actually giving the interview and her going over the interview questions beforehand, and she's like iterating her answers, saying her answers over and over again to herself, to the mirror, to try to figure out the exact, precise, precise wording she wants to use, and um. It tracks so perfectly well that she's sitting in a bathroom stall, sweating her ass off, given that this is who this person is. And she, what she's, yeah, what she seems like in that practicing scene is she seems like an alien or like an android that's like yes. in mm. human skin <laughs> yes. and is like, is this yes. what people do? Um, which know. is why, which is why Tilda Swinton's perfect casting because Tilda Swinton, like, I buy her as like an alien who doesn't like know how people react. Quick um, note about how how wonderful she is. Um, I love her in, like, everything. Yeah, she's really... She's, like, the best thing in everything she's in. Somehow, despite her looking like herself in this, I, like, forget that that's her. Yes. 
I do too. Yeah. Um, and I think it's be you have to have seen because when I first saw this and she was getting Oscar buzz and whatever, I was pretty underwhelmed by her performance when I was like seventeen or eighteen. Once, yeah, it's within. I'm using the word context again. Once it's within the context of the rest of her career, um, I completely I, agree. I think it becomes clear how subtly different this performance is than some of the other things that she does. She's amazing. She's an artist. She's an absolute artist. Yeah, oh, absolutely. This was. I hadn't seen her anything before this. This is my first exposure to Tilda Swinton. And like exactly like you just said, uh, seeing her work since then and then coming back to this, I, I also kind of, despite how distinct she looks, I also kind of like she does disappear into it somehow, even though she's not doing anything. Um, the way she enunciates words, the way she moves her mouth, the way her eyes dart. Um, There's a great moment. She, she's so good. A great moment in that scene. Well, I think my favorite moment in the whole scene when she's asked about work-life balance and yep. she's pra- there's your balance she's practiced your balance. she's practiced yes exactly she's practiced I, first of all yeah, the fact that she's got all of the questions obviously this is a woman who has to be prepared at all times she has to see everything coming and be yes. absolutely yes, yes, perfect yes. part and part of that maybe she's a woman in a man's role like she's literally taking over for the ken howard character the don jeffries who's the ceo of you north now he was previously general counsel because that's what she's explaining in the interview. He brought her into the company through the general counsel's office. He's now moved up. And he's up. only given this interview. He's only given this interview. She's only given this interview sitting right beside him. Correct. Like he's like watching over her. That's the thing I love. Says. She's asked the balance question. And Ken Howard, it's very subtle and you have to be staring over at him. But I've watched the film enough to notice. He's got this kind of just natural, like perfectly approachable kind of chuckle or laugh quietly to himself mm-hmm, he mm-hmm, seems mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. he seems like everybody's dad just sitting there she however is still struggling to get through the answer even though she's practiced it like she doesn't understand the word balance and you it's not difficult yeah. to un, to realize this is a woman well, who doesn't putting, know what she's, she's putting on a performance yes well and she, but she's not even doing it that well it's clear this is the one thing she's hung up on she doesn't understand the question being asked and real quick, I got to say, uh, shout out to Ken Howard as uh, Hank Hooper on 30 Rock. Any 30 Rock fans will recognize. Like, I hadn't seen 30 Rock when I first saw this movie, so I didn't know who Hank Hooper was. But uh, watching this <laughs> watching this a month ago for the first time in 15 years, it was almost a jump scare when it came on screen. I'm like, oh, my God, it's, it's Hank Hooper without a mustache. Yeah, CEO, of, CEO of Cable Town, right? Chairman, CEO of CEO Cable of Town. CEO Cable Town is um, now the CEO of UNorth. Yes. Uh, more dastardly. Okay, one more thing about the first like 16 minutes is um please something i thought was cool is when i uh, i wrote in my notes um you know what is what's the inciting incident here because it usually would come around usually a little earlier than 16 but right around there the inciting incident is the best decision he makes in the entire movie which i think is really curious because it's often referred to by um like paul oster for example as the mistake that sets the story in motion you know character mm-hmm. makes one yep, sort of yep, thing yep. that they shouldn't do um you could say his is the choice to pull over and look at the horses, and that is not a mistake. Yeah. It saves his life, um, which mm-hmm. I think is a, a pretty brilliant twist on that trope. Which yeah. is yeah. something on on that note, and we're uh, now that we're kind of headed in that direction. But I think while we're talking about that scene where he gets out of the car, it's a it's a beautiful early morning scene. By the way, the sun is just a, uh, the, the yeah. this is Robert Ellsworth as there's, we're talking about fog cinematographer New York yeah cinematographer for this film same as there will be blood and he captures he won the Oscar this year for a different movie right he yeah. captures that he captures the rolling hills of, of Westchester County perfectly You've got the glorious looking horses up on the hill under that one lone tree in the middle of an open field mm. 
And yeah, yeah there's something like there's something poetic and, and kind of misty eyed in George Clooney's it's just ethereal. The, yeah. yeah, the way he just stares at them. The, the score is great at this point. Yeah, the, the piano. Yeah, it's great. And it's a it's a little thing. I love the fact that we see the it, like and like the way it, it actually happens. You see the explosion right before you actually hear it. So you see the yes. explosion yes. behind him while he's still mm-hmm. contemplating what he's looking at. There's a yes. moment where there's just this, if you paused it just right, he looks so at peace while there's, his car is exploding behind him. It is just in that moment. I have had, I did this last time. I stopped the movie at that point because I love that scene. That's it. That is the moment. Like suddenly here, okay, we're off to the races. This is, how did we get to this moment? And... Also, if you watch if you watch the film more than once, this guy's on a journey, and at that moment, he has obviously come well ahead of whatever's going on behind him. What's interesting about his reaction to the explosion, what we cut on before we cut to four days later, is him running towards the car. And like we're not sure at first why he's running towards the car in that opening scene. And before we get an, an answer of why he's running towards the car, we fade to white, and it says four days later. Um, and when we come back to it in the third act, it's because he's throwing his watch while and cell phone into the car to fake his own death the, and then get away. This is something I, this is something else I did not pick up on until probably the, the third probably watch of this movie because it's so subtle. The four, when we cut to four days earlier, we cut to Henry, his son, mm-hmm. playing with his video game, Realms and Conquest. That's the, the first thing we see is that title on his computer screen. Without And obviously, the audience, you have no idea the connection that that's going to have to what we just saw. Even though it answers right. the question, why the hell did he get out of his car and just approach these horses? After our 16-minute prologue, introduce Michael Clayton, introduce Karen Crowder. Uh, Karen Crowder's interview, quote-unquote, with, with the North you know, media team, basically, is interrupted because they get word that... Uh, Arthur Leeds, Leeds, is that his last name? Arthur Edens. I think like the Garden of Eden, Edens, Arthur Edens. Arthur Edens. Yeah, and Edens being a biblical illusion because he's the one that sort of strips naked. Uh, When he feels this moment of innocence, it's almost like a reverse. Uh, He's trying to sort of like return back to the Garden of Eden there. Correct. He's he's trying to shed or overcome his sins. He's realizing the errors of his way, and now he's on a crusade to get back into the promised land. like And he does all this in, in a deposition room in Milwaukee as they're deposing uh, the uh, like the daughter of farmers who were affected by this product made by you North, made by this yeah, the The daughter of the farmers played by Merritt Weaver, who this is one of her earliest roles. Really? Yeah, yeah. She's, oh she yeah. plays Anna. Anna. Anna's Merritt Weaver. How about that? So then Michael Clayton gets called into Milwaukee to go corral arthur who is i think in like a, a holding cell because he stripped naked and like ran into a parking garage with his with his junk out after this after merritt weaver um and we get we get tom wilkinson throwing fastballs throwing heat out the gate and we get uh basically context for the opening voiceover we're, i think we're led to believe that the opening voiceover was like arthur's reaction to seeing michael clayton walk into the uh, holding cell that he's being held in and he says you know uh basically tells him about this uh realization he had that he spent a sixth of his life defending these monsters that have have killed hundreds of people with their cancer causing product 
and that um, this girl, Anna, is who he should really be defending. And, like, he says this in a much more manic, crazy-sounding way. Uh, he talks about going to a whorehouse in Chelsea uh, <laughs> very casually. It is, um, it, is, it is worth noting. Tom Wilkinson, of course, is an English actor. He has, and yes. he's shedding the English accent here. He's playing an American. Mm-hmm. He's talking so rapidly that when you watch yes. it, it is shockingly impressive that how the, rip, the the speed and rapidity with which he is performing this scene and several scenes in this film, he is like he is leaps and bounds ahead of everybody else. Not just in in his catharsis of his, his character internally, but the fact that he is just like going. He's he's speeding through his dialogue. I, b- I believe this scene was his Oscar clip. I believe his Oscar clip ended with I'm Shiva, God of Death, uh, which is something he says to Michael Clayton, our titular character. And um, with with Arthur, what I find fascinating about Arthur is everybody talks now, oh my gosh, he really is crazy, isn't he? And it, it's recognized clearly that he has a mental illness, that he has a psychological disorder, manic depression. However, within the context of the movie, um, what <laughs> one man's psychological illness is the same man's moral and spiritual awakening um sure he's the quote-unquote crazy one but in a world of you know you've got cops thinking you're lawyers and lawyers thinking you're cops who are you and everybody is uh fronting he's actually the one that makes the most sense uh he uncovers what's going on and he makes the right decision well, he, he mm-hmm. comes to the realization, I mean, this is a movie, it's a movie about reckoning. Michael's on the journey throughout this film, as we're going to see. Arthur has realized who he is. He's realized his life's work. He's realized what he's been doing. And he's now uh, attempting to correct for it. Of course, he's described as, he's he is crazy because he is... Uh, he's outside the bounds of normalcy for what he's doing. He's suddenly, instead of what he's been doing for the last three decades, which is defending these large corporations, and specifically this one he's been working on for the last like seven or eight years, that he's represented this one client, suddenly he's now wanting to flip sides and he wants to represent the plaintiff. He wants to go after the very people he's been making. He builds the case against you, Norm. Everything he's constructed in his career as a litigator, a defendant's litigator, he wants to take it all down. He wants to rip it all apart. So he's described as crazy. Fortunately, we are, it's hinted at, despite the fact that, yes, he seems manic, there's that, that great scene, which we can discuss more in a little bit, in the alley, where he's confronted with yeah. Michael again when they're back with in New York. Bread. And has all the bread. He I counted. Yes. 15 or 16. Yes. yes 15 or 16. Full length French baguettes. Yes. And they, they. The best bread I've ever tasted. They do look good. Every time I watch this movie, I Dude, do even talk about it to myself. Carb overload, though. I kind of want one of those. But in that scene, yeah, sure, he seems, he seems off his rocker, but he is still as sharp as ever. Extremely smart. Yes. Extremely smart. And like, you get hints of like how good he is as a lawyer in this like very brief. And like you get the hints that like you know Michael Clayton did say he was a killer. You get you get hints of that in this conversation with Michael. Yes, where he's not threatening but close to threatening. You know, well he's 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 Michael, Michael says I'm not the enemy, and he says who are you then? You know, that's well that's the ultimate question of the movie, right? Who's yeah, Mike? Who's literally Karen? Of course, why is this called Michael Clayton? Because it's about Michael. Clayton. And Karen Crowder yeah. asked the question, "Who is this guy?" Early. Okay, that was the, that was the next thing I was going to bring up. That was the next thing I was going to bring up because after the scene of Michael Clayton and Arthur in the holding cell, uh, we get 
back to Karen Crowder and her U North team, basically watching the, the deposition video of, of Arthur Tinga's close off. And she says, who's this guy that the law firm sent this Michael Clayton guy. And then we get, uh, my, we get, you know, uh, no, no sound as Michael deals with the police in Milwaukee and gets Arthur out of the holding cell. As we hear this associate of Karen Crowder go through his whole, you know, where he was born, where he grew up, where he went to school, where he went to law school, and how he was the ADA in Queens, and then he was, you know, with a joint Manhattan Queens, you know, organized crime task force. He's been at Kenner Kennerman Bach for seventeen years, but he's not a partner, and he's in Wills and Trust, as you said. And so it, it is the underlying question: Who is Michael Clayton? Who is this guy? There's the other, and why his title officially? He is special counsel, which special is an counsel, unusual yes. title. Attorneys really don't have that title in law firms. You're either an associate, you're a partner, or you might be of counsel, which is a title they often give to more senior attorneys who aren't partners but have joined a firm later on and are, you know, donating their expertise to the firm where needed. No, he's like 45, so he's not even old, but he's special counsel. Like, this is, he's outside the norm of, of, he's outside the norm for large firms and attorneys. And, and, there's a great conversation he has with Sidney Pollock, Marty Bach, where like uh, there's a hint that this this firm is merging with a British firm, and Marty Bach's probably going to cash out, and that causes Michael some panic because you know as he kind of says in this conversation, like you Marty know what I do, you know my worth, but it's hard to explain what I do to other people, you know it. And Marty con- tries to assuage him. He says, you know, you you found a niche. You're good at what you do. You're really great at this. Everyone would kill to be great at something, and you're great at this. This being, you know, special counsel, fixer, you know, just solver of problems. Basically, that is another um, another great moment or concept for for as far as legal films go. The idea of niche that's so important. Now, granted, it's important in all fields, but carving out a niche for yourself—that's what everybody's. That's what everybody wants. Which is why Marty's trying to remind him, like, you've got it made. Like you, right. you're unique, but the other the other great thing about that scene is that after we flash four days earlier, we get you know Michael and Henry, and then the the next thing scene scene we see before we even see Michael and his office doing his job is we see him uh, auctioning off you know basically selling off everything at this bar that he tried to set up and it didn't work out, and we learn that he's seventy five thousand dollars in debt with these loan sharks, and he's got to come up with seventy five k, and it isn't immediately clear how or if that's connected to the main plot line, which is this you North case and, and Arthur going crazy, et cetera. And then in this scene with Marty, he asks Marty Bach, I need a loan. I need 80 K. I need a loan. And Marty basically says, you'll get it if you can get Arthur under control. And that connects our, our a plot and our B plot. And now an enormous racing of stakes where not only, you know, does Michael need to get Arthur under control for the sake of, this law firm, because if he doesn't, their law firm is probably going to go under, as Marty in- implies. Now he also is going to get basically his legs break- broken by loan sharks if he doesn't find Arthur as well. So very, very good tying of the plots together in this in this scene. TJ, you've been quiet. Yeah. Um, you have you have five and a half pages of notes. Speak up. Tell me what you got. A couple performance things. Uh, we were talking about Tilda Swinton, but if this movie were made like maybe ten years earlier, Jodie Foster plays that role. 100%. I have not. I mean, she does. She kind of plays that role in Inside Man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, same something vibe, else. Same vibe, at least. Clooney's doing this thing where. that. By the way, there was no insight to that comment at all. It was just a note I had. But uh, Clooney's doing this thing where he had a string of films 
that I think he was excellent in nearly all yes. of them, where he he has such a classically handsome and expressive face that he can often oh, yeah. he can often use to be uh, cartoonish. If you look at something like you know his quote unquote idiot trilogy with the the Coen brothers, you know, uh, a brother mm-hmm. right down, Talibu Kruti, Hail Caesar, uh, where he has these extremely caricature-esque facial expressions. The other thing he can do, because he also has a, a very rich voice, is he can do so much with so little, um, mm-hmm. underplaying uh, moments very effectively. And I, I, the string is like Michael Clayton, uh, Up in the Air, The Descendants, and then I don't know if you saw The American Yes. Oh, like I the love least that movie. Well known of those, um, where he basically like builds a gun for an hour and a half. He's an assassin, um, <laughs> and uh, he—I don't know—he just had this really, I think, excellent streak from like the mid two thousands to the early twenty tens, where um, he was very in control of his his rather expressive face and does a lot often by doing less than others would do. Um, that's just yeah. a couple notes about that. He he's great in the in the scene where he learns he's he owes seventy five thousand. Just like his reaction to hearing that number, he's the loan shark's like, "What would you would you think it'd be?" And he says, "I don't know, mm-hmm. less for yeah, the record, 30, may, 20. maybe the you know maybe the the one of the nicest or at least most empathetic loan sharks we've ever seen in film. They clearly have a relationship, yes. though. Like they know each other. They've dealt with each other in the past. The loan shark is going so far as to say. You and I both know that you're not the guy. Like this isn't you. This I, sh- isn't, I should be talking to right. your brother. This is not your. That's the other thing is is his brother Timmy is who he, who he went into business with. He went into business with his brother Timmy. And his brother Timmy is the reason the bar failed because he took the money and ran and got drugs with it. Don't, that's what we intimate. Don't get me wrong. The loan shark is going to do what he's going to do because that's, he's got to get his money back. But he feels he does feel bad. You can tell he's he is sympathetic to Michael's plight and situation. Genuinely, well, he likes the he guy. Even, he even says like he even says like yeah, I know your brother's an addict. I was married to an alcoholic for many years. It's a sad thing. He he relates to him. He yep. empathizes like you just said. Yeah, yeah. It's it, but also says you got a week exactly. Find a treasure map and start digging. And that's exactly what he says. Find that, a treasure map and start digging. That um role that type of kind of. Empathetic but strong father is something that's repeated throughout the film as well. Michael plays ends up playing that. Um, you've got the loan shark kind of doing this, that. This loan shark is notably a lot older than Michael, so the the father thing is very interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. And Marty, um, what's interesting right. about Sidney Pollack's performance, I think, is that's a role that uh, on paper should be played very sleazy, and he plays it more like a weary and kind of disappointed father. Yep. Oh yeah, absolutely. He's not an evil guy. He's not a bad guy. He is, however, a pragmatic. very human. Yes, he's very pragmatic. He's self-interested. He's concerned about the firm. And, of course, he's concerned about himself. And there are hints of stereotype there. Like, he's got a much younger wife. His, her name is Cindy. He's got young kids. Yes. And he's, at this point, about 70 yes. years old. Yeah, the fact that his wife is, like, younger than Michael. Right. And he's in his 70s is, is noted, for sure. Yes. And... Even just the way, like he even says when they're they're in the bar after Arthur has, has died and they're having the little memorial get together immediately after finding out that night at the bar. The whole firm is there. And Marty, like, he's he's feeling guilty and he doesn't want to say it. And Michael says it for him, like, you know, basically we cut a break. Like Arthur's Arthur's yeah. death actually yeah, yeah. saves the firm. And it's like, yo, no, that's yes. exactly what he's thinking. Like, even though he's been yeah. friends with Mar he's been friends with Arthur for thirty years. Marty's initial. He's relieved yes, by his death. Exactly, yeah. his initial reaction is relief. That's yes. Says everything. 
Well, there's a soulless, there's a soullessness to their roles. And the whole movie is cast in kind of a pall of uh, blacks and whites and grays and muted blues. Well, there's, I already kind of said it out loud, but there's the great line, you know, right at the start of Act 3 where Michael realizes what Arthur was on to, that you North is the bad guy here. And he, he goes to Marty and says, what if, what if Arthur was right? What if he was onto something? And, and <laughs> Marty says, are you kidding me? Like 15 years in, I got I to explain to you how we keep the lights on. Basically saying like, who cares if they're wrong? Like we're a law firm. They hired us. They're paying us to defend them. It doesn't matter what's right or wrong here. Correct. You know, well, what matters is they're paying us, well, you know, we got to do our jobs. Well, yes, because in the, I mean, that's, that's, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's criticism of the little, the, or not criticism. It's just an expose, I guess, of the legal field and a reminder. Like, it's not that it, a lot of people have, you know, they've got bad impressions and bad opinions about lawyers generally. There are good, there's, there's like the Arthur kind of, he wants to defend the little guy. He wants to save them. But at the same time, for every one of those lawyers, you've got a team of lawyers making money on the other side because, let's face it, somebody's got to prosecute, somebody's got to sue, yes. and somebody has to defend. Yes. That's how the legal – that's how the law works. So I want to I move into – move a little quicker here. So we got to Arthur breaking down in the deposition, and we got to the who, who is Michael Clayton scene. So real quick, the next like 10, 15 minutes is, you know, uh, Michael – gets the Arthur situation under control. He gets him sedated. He, you know, talks to the deposition team, et cetera. Um, he meets with Karen Crowder. And uh, Arthur's bag is missing, his his bag that he had in the deposition room with him. And we learn that Karen Crowder has the bag. And in that bag, she finds this U-North memo from 1991 that basically is the whole case. It's a U-North memo from 1991 basically admitting in no uncertain terms that this product they have is is causing serious human tissue damage and is odorless and tasteless, and you can get in the groundwater at farms where it's used. It is memo, so basically this memo two twenty nine. It's the ultimate smoking gun. This is it. This is it's the, the ultimate case. smoking gun. This this three billion dollar class action lawsuit from hundreds of farmers suing you north is comes down to this memo that basically proves that they're correct in their class action lawsuit, pretty much. And Arthur has it, and she's extremely distraught about that. So what does she do? She does something that I hope Ken as a lawyer has never had to do and never will have to do, and that is make a phone call to a guy named Mr. Vern, and she has to use a a nine-digit code in order to have this conversation with Mr. Vern, and she got his number from Don Jeffries and was told she could call at any time, and um, this part is like both very disgusting and disturbing but also extremely cool like it's really cool (laughs) like i'm um, struck every time i watch this this is not a particularly confident woman she's clearly she's trying to she's repeatedly trying to convince herself that yes she's got the job because she's good at what she does like she's earned this it's crazy to watch this woman it's like she's the one going to hire hitmen first at first to be fair at first she's she's using them as babysitters basically they're just tailors yeah Yeah, they're they're keeping an eye on him right yeah they they find him long before michael clayton does that's for sure they find out a lot being hired to figure out where arthur is and they they find him immediately yeah these just wandering around Times square these guys these guys know just about every almost everything in the film and almost where everybody is at any given moment and what they're up to before anybody else they are they are basically all seeing all knowing at all times and yeah she's she's using stolen she's using stolen property to to now uh guide her in a, an attempted uh i mean basically it's obstruction of justice is what it is yeah 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 but 
so at this point, like, you know, we're, I don't know, 45, 50-ish minutes in. And, like, at this point, like, the movie's really cooking. Like, we have we have the main plot, which is we need to get Ar- – Michael needs to get Arthur under control. And eventually we get the scene that ties his, his loan shark issue with the Arthur issue. And at the same time, like, Karen Crowder is also trying to get Arthur under control with this memo. So she has the, the – Mr. Vern, his associate, following him. So, like, that's – then the movie really, really starts cooking. And we get some, like – Banger after banger after banger scene in a row. We get the uh, the confrontation between Michael and Arthur in the alley, like you just said, Ken, with the baguettes. Fifteen or sixteen baguettes. Fifteen or sixteen baguettes. That scene goes, and that's when uh, uh, Arthur realizes they're tapping his phones, which is again Mr. Vern tapping his phone. And then that scene goes immediately into Arthur calling his own voicemail at the law firm and reading the memo and offering commentary in a really really good scene. And that scene goes immediately into Mr. Vern alerting Karen Crowder to the fact that Arthur has this memo and is prepared to share it. And we we already said this is a movie for grownups and like it doesn't hold your hand and like watching it twice helps because like you you know what Karen Carter and Mr. Vern are talking about here, but you kind of don't they don't ever say it like she talks about what their options are to contain this. And uh, Mr. Vern says, well, we deal in absolutes. And then Karen Crowder's like, so there's, you know, the containment way. There's also the, uh, the other way. The other way. The other way is is the other way. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, that scene goes right into uh, Michael's family's birthday party where it's his, it's his dad's birthday and we meet his brother uh, who's, a, who's a cop in Queens. And then we get the uh, Arthur's murder scene, which is, again, horrifying, but also like cool in a really perverse way it's ruthlessly 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 efficient and it's all in one shot it's a 90, 90 second oneer maybe maybe 60 seconds i don't even know uh on it, it, i've read the screenplay as I, as i said earlier and uh it's also very good on the page actually on in the screenplay it says like it says before at the top of the scene this will all be done in a oneer and it will be done very quickly and like there's a block of text where it describes what's happening, and then it says, like, 15 seconds. Another block of text that describes what's happening, then it says 30 seconds. Another block of text that describes what's happening, then it says 45 seconds. So, like, it, it's it's a great scene on the page. It's a great scene in the movie, too. And also, like, extremely disturbing, though. It's also, again, it's 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 subtle, and it's something I only picked up on probably within the last couple of watches. But it's another biblical reference, the way he's the way he's positioned with his arms. Like, I mean, he's basically crucified. He's he's yeah. he's leading this charge against this company. He's got the truth behind him, and they've got to take him out before he takes apart the the the, the wheel, the structure. It's really sad. Like it, it it's it just happens so quickly that like by the time you even realize what's happening, you're like, oh oh no, oh no. How how easy it was and how quick it was. You know, uh, TJ, what do you have on uh, any of the scenes I just listed, but particularly Arthur's death scene? Whenever I come into my home, I always check behind the door now after this movie, um, <laughs> given some of the high-profile shit that I've been involved in lately. Catherine Waterston is in the movie. Yes. I don't know if we noticed that. Briefly, um, yeah. Yeah, she I shows up in there. That, no. she's, she's in the – when they're in Milwaukee, she's one of the young gun attorneys in the hotel room when Michael comes ah, back. Ah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, the Arthur with Anna business, um, that's not sexual love, right? No, okay. Really. I didn't think so. It gets, it gets, it, it's definitely creepy and uncomfortable. But I didn't think that it was that, and I just wanted to make sure that was a question I had in my notes. I, I don't think so. So this is, this is actually. If you looked at my letterbox, I rated this film four and a half out of five. 
Uh, I'm not going to bury the lead on that. My only problem with the film, and it's it's I don't think it's nitpicking. In order for all of this to work, you have to assume the NYPD just does not care or is not very good at their jobs because in this scene they make it look like a, a suicide and the police just buy into it immediately without really following up okay well these guys are good like these guys are really that, really that good. good because like, michael shows up he's got a bottle of he's got a they, first of all they don't think it's the police don't think it's accidental they think he committed a suicide marty suggests marty's the one who suggests maybe it was accidental police think it was intentional He's got a bottle of champagne and a couple of flutes waiting in the refrigerator. And oh, yeah, he just bought a first class plane ticket to fly some woman from Milwaukee to New York and nobody follows hey, up hey, on it. If 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 it looks as as clear case as it was, like the doors were locked, the fire escape was locked. It, it took him 10 minutes to even get into the apartment. If it looks that much like a suicide, they're not going to like look into his financials and see that he just bought a first class. They're going to. Michael learns that. Michael learns that eventually which we can come back to but like I, I don't like fault the nypd here they got a lot on their plate <laughs> yeah it's just a little like they, they're going to do a little more investigation than what they do and it's just a small weakness that we have to you you, you have to have it this way because the police can't really be directly involved in this michael has to be the one basically uncovering all of this tj what do you have in the death scene on michael on uh arthur's death scene is this before or after the like birthday party scene with his father it's intercut. Intercut. So we get the we get we get the first part of the birthday scene, then we get Arthur's death, and when we get the second half of the birthday scene, and Michael gets the phone call about Arthur as the driving away from the birthday scene. I think it's important also that Arthur's method of death is poison. Mm-hmm. Michael's dad has yeah. a has a caretaker and is on oxygen. Uh, presumably, yes. presumably he was a smoker. Um, we have that the brothers, which is all ties to all ties to the U North class action case right but people in failing health due to whatever these big corporations we have the brother that's a drug addict we have the dad uh the loan shark guy talking about his wife um something that's going on in this movie is because the, when arthur's reading the memo he's talking about it's odorless and colorless and we just pipe it right into mm-hmm. your home um yeah michael is a character who is everyone knows who he is but nobody knows him Everyone knows him, but nobody knows him, right? And yeah. so we're all, I think what the movie's about is we all sleepwalk through and and slowly sort of retreat to and breathe in the things that ultimately kill us. Uh, Metaphor- yeah. Metaphorically speaking, but also literally speaking, right? And so that moment that he has with his son, uh, that speech that moment that, yeah. you, that you brought up, Youth and children. Well, I haven't brought it up on mic yet. I brought it up before turn the mic on. Can I bring it up real quick before yeah, you go, ahead. go, go ahead. into your answer? Yeah. Okay. So as they're driving away from the from his from Michael's father's birthday party, uh, Uncle Timmy walks up, the drug addict who you know effed Michael over with the bar situation. Uh, he says, "I made day sober. I wanted to let you know, etc." Um, Michael's having none of that. And as they're driving away, he turns to his son Henry and says, um, "Gives him the spiel." And as I said to you guys before, we turn the mics on, like. This is a very, very efficiently told movie with not an ounce of fat on it, and there are so few moments, if any, where the movie comes to a halt where it can have, like, a moment where, like, it underlines this is an important moment. Everything else, like, everything else that happens is important, but it seems to be happening, like, in a in a whiplash pace, and this is, like, the one scene where, like, it stops, and he says something to his son. He says, uh, a, a big spiel, but he says... Quote, you're not going to be one of these people that goes through life wondering why shit keeps falling out of the sky around them uh, because you're strong. You're not going to be like your Uncle Timmy. You're not, and 
he says you're not gonna be like uncle timmy the implication is you're not gonna be like me either because michael is also a mess and what i said to you guys before we turn the mics on is i think that what he's saying here is you're not gonna grow up to be someone who needs someone like me who needs a fixer but you're also not gonna grow up to be someone like me who's a mess and not uncle timmy who's a mess Sorry, go ahead and what do you have on this scene with his son? Well, he, he's turning his attention to children and innocence, which is something that is a, a key to the kind of salvation in this movie. Arthur, for Arthur, it was Anna, right? Talks about how innocent she is and how young she is. Um, Henry, which is Michael's son, how innocent he is, how young he is. He lives in a fantasy world, which is something that Arthur could connect with Henry about when they talk on the phone about Realm and Conquest. Um, this is kind of the first time that Michael really looks at and communicates with his son. What that's allowing for is like, he's seeing it, he's describing his brother's problem as like a helplessness, right? Things fall out of the sky on him that people don't take responsibility for the things that, that slowly kill them. Right. Um, so I think, I think the movie is kind of posing here. What is it that's going to kill us and what is it that's going to ruin us? And will we recognize what that is and try to get out before try to get back to that innocence before ultimately we're wrecked. And from this moment on, you know, once we get then to the like bar scene afterward, where they drink to Arthur, we're always ahead of Michael plot wise. You know, if you think about something like Chinatown, we only figure things out as Jake, Mr. Gitch figures (laughs) things out, Mm -hmm. but we are ahead of Michael. So it becomes really not, not us finding out what's happening, but we're finding out how is he going to find out? Right. And I think that goes exactly. with yeah. I, I think that goes with Ken's point earlier that uh, the character the movie in terms of being about that character is about him having a sort of awakening or having a sort of, sort of enlightenment. And and how he finds out is after he you know they had this conversation at the bar Michael and Marty Bach Michael says to Marty it's okay you can say it you're relieved that Arthur's gone because it solves all of our problems. Um, he puts in a phone call to Anna because he knew that Arthur had been calling Anna. And learns that she's in New York and learns that Arthur bought her a first class ticket to New York and then allegedly kills himself like as she arrives in New York, which doesn't make any sense. And as Ken said, he finds two chilling champagne flutes and a bottle of champagne in Arthur's fridge and none of this adds up. Uh, When he's in Arthur's apartment, he first of all, he gets caught by the police, which puts his his cop brother in a bind. The brother basically helped him break into Arthur's apartment illicitly. Um, But while he's in Arthur's apartment, he finds this receipt for a printer print shop and he goes to the print shop with the receipt and finds that arthur has printed out three thousand copies of this memo 229 226 what is it 29 229 and uh he binds it in a red book with the cover realm and conquest much like henry's book uh another literary reference well and which is like literally a cover right you're not going to title it memo 229 but uh, yes. what, what, what's important about that is his, that ties Arthur's revelation towards the protection of innocence and getting himself out of being complicit with the poisoning of these innocent people. It ties that to, um, Henry's story in which he describes, you know, when they were on the phone, he says a whole bunch of people having the same dream and yeah. Arthur talks about it being summoned, right? They're being called out and he says, yeah. but it's really happening. And later he says to Michael, make believe that it's not just madness. Um, right, he scrolls yeah, it on the wall of the, it's, the hotel. It's re- yeah, it's requiring that you kind of believe or accept that things that seem fantastical or conspiratorial actually have kind of an effect in this real world. Correct. This is again. This is this is straight out of a seventies thriller, like 
you know, I literally just a few weeks, just actually not even a few, like two weeks ago, watched the Parallax View starring Warren Beatty. Um, you could go watch Three Days of the Condor, which is uh, from Sidney Pollock, for example. Like this whole idea of just because it's a conspiracy doesn't mean it's happening kind of thing. Um, also the fact that this this idea of fantasy kind of is totally undercut by the fact that, no, no, it's reality. Um, it Not just as this kind of conjures up, I don't know about you guys, it kind of conjures up the idea of Blade Runner because all these people having the same dream. Um, well, yeah, because it's and it's it's taking the title of the fantasy book and placing it on the actual Lego memo, right? Well, um, yeah, literally yeah. the same. The, the, mm-hmm. the book the book itself is a red has a red leather bound, uh, and then mm-hmm. he's he's printed had the 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 memo printed out with a red cover, red binding. And Henry Henry makes reference to the red cover at least two or three times. So like they they hang a lantern on the fact that his book is a red cover and then he prints the memo with the with 2000 red covers but the print shop only has 2000 so they had to do the last 1000 in blue cover instead. Which how how does Vern get one? When Michael goes to the print shop yeah. and learns that there are 3000 copies, Mr. Vern or Mr. Vern's associate rather is behind Michael in line and sees him do this. So I assume he goes up to the kid and says, "Hey, can I get a copy of that?" I don't know. Or he's a terrible worker. But, <laughs> or he well, sneaks it's a kid. in. The kid's like seventeen. He He's just like bribed him with like Clayton. fifty bucks. Well, he gives him fifty bucks to hold on to it. Like, I mean, this it, maybe Mr. Vern gave him a hundred bucks to give him a copy. I don't know. Okay. It doesn't seem that if difficult. After all, the kids think there's like I got three thousand copies back here. What's one? Right? Yeah. Who gives a shit if I can give this one right. to this blonde guy? Yeah. Um, but this this leads to um, a moment that I didn't realize that I didn't notice until my fourth viewing, which was about an hour before we recorded. Uh, Michael takes a copy of this memo in this red binding, takes it to Marty Bach, and that's where we have the you know what we already alluded, which was you know what if what if Arthur's onto something, and and Marty kind of scolds him for being naive, basically. And uh, at this point, the, Marty is on his way out the door to go like settle this case with, for you North, basically, and he gives Michael his check for eighty grand, uh, job well done, getting Arthur in control, um, you know. So n- now Michael's problems are solved. You know, Michael can walk away and there's a great moment and they don't, they don't like hang too much of a lantern on this. A lesser filmmaker would go to a close up here, but they don't, they keep it in the, in the wide. Michael has the red memo in his left hand and his hand to the check in his right hand. And like, you forget he even has the memo in his left hand, but like, there it is right there. That's like his moment where like. His problems are solved with the check in his right hand, or he can pursue the truth and justice with his left and hand in the memo. let's be clear, he picks the check. He does. He does. He exactly right. Ken, you said, you said in the opening when he runs, when his car blows up, he runs towards the car. That is like him making his decision to do the thing. And that's exactly right. Had his car not blown up, he would have walked away. He had his 80 grand. He had his, his walkaway money. He pays off his debts. He, he goes back to the car. He goes back to the card tables with his extra five grand. And he's, you know, I, I think that he's fine. I, I think it happens or it begins to happen a little bit sooner when he yeah. actually opens the real book, Realm and Conquest, and sees yeah. the picture of the horses. Because well, then, yeah, that's because then, wow, because yeah. then when because then when he sees the horses actually in nature. So in, in opening up the listening to the innocence, the fantasy and opening up that sort of possibility, he 
then recognizes it in nature later, which nature is something that what he's working on is destroying, right? The people that he's working on is destroying. It opens him up to that sort of possibility of a new life um, or some sort of awakening, gets him out of the car. And that's the like, quote unquote, inciting incident that keeps him from dying. Well, it's you, you mentioned the book. First of all, his son has been mentioning the book repeatedly. Every time we see Henry, he's usually mentioning it in passing or is talking about the book in some way. We first actually get Michael paying attention to the book only when he's in Arthur's apartment investigating afterward. And suddenly the book that he's kind of in passing or kind of off to the, not paying attention, but he's heard his son mention. Suddenly Arthur has this book and he's got, he's got that bad boy highlighted throughout. Highlighted in multiple colors, writings in the margins, pages earmarked. This is also yeah. a great bit of, of, of kind of post-production. The image in the book of the – it's only a single horse in the book on the hill. That is apparently CGI'd in to the film. That is not actually in the book. But they decided after the fact we need some inciting incident for him to get out of the car. We need some, something to get him to stop and get out of the car. Oh, we'll put – let's put the horses in the book. I never – Notice that I never connected the fact that there's a horse in the book that he opens in Arthur's apartment, and that is why he gets out of the car to look at the horses. I think that's you know I think that's the key the to tying the the whole like yeah. Eden rebirth youth innocence thing. But to mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. to what we're discussing, when he stops, when he sees the horses, before he sees the horses, like he's starting to have issues from having dealt with with the Dennis O'Hare character, the Mr. Greer in Westchester County, he's fed up. But at that point, he's annoyed with himself because he took the check. Like, he takes the check, and he goes and he he falls off the wagon, so to speak. He goes to play poker. He He goes goes, to gamble. Goes back to play poker for the first time in 10 months after promising his brother he hadn't been into a table. Right, he's a gambling addict. He he probably hadn't been, but once he gets his money, he... His phone goes off. He he's he's rescued from from gambling too much money simply because okay he's got work. he's called in to go to work so he's gonna go fix whatever issue arises. But he's taken yeah. the check, and it's only yeah. when seeing the horses that he stops. He's, his car suddenly stops. Yeah, he, or yep. he yep. stops yep. his car and gets so, out. So him having the check in one hand and the memo in the other hand. That's there. There's. 28 minutes left. That's, yeah, maybe the start of Act 3, I guess, you could argue. And then the movie just fucking cooks. Because at that point, as you alluded, TJ, Mr. Verne knows that Michael Clayton has the memo. He alerts Karen Crowder to the fact that Michael Clayton has the memo. And so then Karen Crowder puts Mr. Verne onto Michael Clayton. And then we see again everything we saw in the opening 15 minutes, but we see it from a different perspective. We see it from Mr. Verne's perspective. And man... It's so good. In the opening scene, Michael Clayton is driving to Westchester, and his da- the GPS on his dashboard kind of flickers, and he, and he bangs his fist on it, trying to get it to, to, to work again. And the reason it flickers, as we learn, is because there is a car bomb installed in the dashboard, because we see Mr. Burns' associate install the car bomb as Michael is emerging from the underground poker room in Chinatown. And, like, the fact that Michael doesn't see this guy get out of his Mercedes is a miracle. Yeah. And like, you know, he's walking away as he's walking away from the car as Michael's walking up to the car and he's on, you know, in his earpiece. Am I clean? Am I clean? It's so good. And then Mr. Verne and his associate are following Michael to Westchester, have him on their little, you know, whatever GPS thing they have in their laptop. And they're, it's, it's like a, a chase scene basically as they're driving through the hills of Westchester, trying to figure out where he is exactly. If he's alone in the car and whether or not they can blow it up. Um, 
it's outstanding. And the, the score is cooking. It's just, it's, it's so good. This is again, kind of, I guess some religious symbolism. I often at this point in the film, like this is what I've been thinking about the last few times I've watched the film. Arthur is, there's the fact that Michael's not a miracle worker, so to speak. Arthur is kind of his guardian angel at this point, because literally this is the first time in the film we've seen Mr. Vern and his associate screw up and not, not get it right. They've, they're not perfecting this kill. Now they are intentionally making it look like an explosion because of course there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people who have a reason to kill Michael. So it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to look like a suicide like Arthur. That said, they kind of botch it. They're kind of rushed and they, they, they're not working their their system of following him is not working correctly there's it's a little bit of reference but the fact that again he stopped because he sees the horses as he saw in the book in arthur's apartment i have a small issue with the car bomb just because it's like such an inconspicuous and sketchy way to kill somebody like nobody nobody gets car bombed outside of like northern ireland in the 1980s And they knew it right away. It wasn't like an accident. It wasn't like his car went off the bridge. They came in like, did you hear like car bomb? I don't know. It was a little sketchy. Can I get, talk about the horses it, it, like one more time? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So there's three of them. There was one in the book. There's three of them up there. And uh, I'm going to English teacher the shit out of this. Uh, when they run away to... Wait, TJ's literature corner. Go. Two go one way. One goes the other way. Who are these horses? Who is he seeing in the horses? Is he seeing himself arthur and marty is he seeing himself his two brothers himself and his two brothers because he goes to talk to his brother afterward hold on hold on uh of which his brother's sort of his salvation or is it him arthur and his son or there's three of them and there's four horses in the book of revelation the four horsemen of the apocalypse so we're one short of his actual sort of salvation and revelation that was the fourth horse also the one that jumps out to me, it's Arthur, Michael, and Karen is another option. There are three attorneys. He's he's had his epiphany. He's he's fully changed, metamorphosized, as you as you mentioned earlier. Michael's still on his journey, and Karen is irredeemable. She has I mean, she is named Karen after all. Yeah, yes. Before that became a, yes, she was a she was the first Karen. Um mm-hmm. she's irredeemable at this point. She sees the memo, and unlike Arthur who realizes like the memo clearly he found the memo and this catapulted his revelation. She finds the memo and her decision is to murder mm-hmm. and not for nothing as we, as, as Michael points out later, he took the check and the moment she finds out he has the, uh, he has the, the memo. It does. She does. It's not, a, there's no hesitation. Like there was initially with Arthur. There's no, awkward conversation with the hitman over whether or not to kill Michael. She's mm-hmm. done it once. It's much easier to do it after you've done it once. So, okay, yeah, we just got to get rid of it. <laughs> Are you Even speaking though, from experience? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, as we've seen throughout all kinds of movies, like when you, it, if you do it once, like Michael in The Godfather, once you do it once, it becomes easier after that. And here you have uh, Karen not thinking. She's a lawyer. She should be competent. Michael is her lawyer. He works well. Also for their firm. R- real quick, real quick though. Like we also return to how we meet Karen in the in the opening, which is her in the bathroom stall with her sweaty armpits. Like we now see that what she's doing in that stall is we intercut between Mister Vern chasing down Michael Clayton the car bomb 
and Karen in the bathroom stall. So presumably she is either making the decision to kill Michael Clayton or sitting there waiting for confirmation that Michael Clayton is dead. One of the two. Uh, enormously important context for her sweaty armpits as we as we meet her in the bathroom in the opening scene, which I thought was interesting. Sorry to bring the conversation to a halt with uh, Tilda Swinton's sweaty armpits. <laughs> um, I think it's I think it's cool and interesting that uh, as you alluded, TJ Timmy. His brother Timmy is his is his saving grace because, as we said like an hour ago, uh, when his car explodes, he runs and throws his wallet, phone, keys, watch in the car to fix his own death, and he runs away in the woods and calls Timmy, and Timmy picks him up, and Timmy helps him out, and then his other brother, the cop brother, uh, helps him in the final scene with the to to put a, put a button on it all, and I really love the final scene where uh, you know Karen is presenting basically the settlement to the U North board to the shareholders saying that like, you know, yeah, we're settling for $600 million. We think it's a good, a good number. Uh, we can write it off as a tax write off, whatever. Like it's, it's not that it's big so, a deal. And then it's so cold and calculating. Yes. It's so cold. And so calculating. And then she walks into the lobby of this hotel and she's got this sly smile on her face. Like I fucking did it. Like all our problems are done. We're setting the case. Arthur's gone. The memo's contained. Michael Clayton's gone, and then George Clooney is right there waiting for him. Looking like Danny Ocean. He looks, he's got that kind of smirk on his face. He's got a bit of a. And I believe this was George Clooney's Oscar clip, if I'm not mistaken. This scene here where he basically gets Karen to admit everything and gets her promise to pay him $10 million. He's wearing a wire. And um, I love the shot as he's walking away from her. We stay with my, the camera stays with Michael Clayton and Tilda Swinton in the background and Don Jeffries in the background are out of focus. And like the police arresting her, that the justice being served, the conclusion is out of focus because we're focused on Michael um, and him and his brother. And I think that's good stuff. I think it also just kind of echoes um, that that shot Ken was talking about earlier where he was in the foreground with the horses and then the explosion in the background of his car. Mm hmm. Um, yeah. And then primes us for this pretty amazing last shot. Which is? Uh, he gets in a taxi and uh, gives the taxi driver money. 50 bucks. So where, so where are we going? And he says, just drive. And we're kind of locked on the clown's face as they're just driving. And he's uh, really just thinking about, you know, all the shenanigans that went down over the last hour and 55 thinking, minutes. Thinking about some horses. And credits for all. There's again that that music comes back. There's again that looming sense of paranoia, taking us back to the beginning of the film where we were introduced to Arthur and Karen having anxiety and paranoia out of context, not attached to something. But this time, it, it absolutely is because it seems like uh, Clooney got Clooney uh, Clayton got away with it. He wins, but there, you know, loose ends aren't really going to be tied up here. And he has what a are reason be the consequences to be... for the law firm. Well, he doesn't he, win. What are the consequences for the law firm going to be at this Not point? Not just the yeah, law firm. Law firm goes under. You think, well, I, yeah. He, what's his future? Big question mark. You North, you North owes them nine million dollars in legal fees that they're probably not going to pay now, as Marty Bach alluded twenty five minutes before this. Scene, it's not so. just about the firm. Michael, not, he's going to lose his license. He can't practice anymore. Yeah. He just turned on yeah. his own client. And that was His like the one, the one thing he really was. So when the taxi driver asks him, so what are we doing? He doesn't say, where are we going? He says, so what are we doing? Um, 
Michael is now without the one thing that anybody knew about him, right? So uh, this this is a bittersweet ending for him in the sense that I think he achieved that same sort of <laughs> uh, molting that Arthur did at the beginning of the movie, that same sort of like enlightenment and attunement towards fantasy and innocence, but everything that was previously toxic and poisonous for him was also the thing that kind of gave him his lifeblood, and it's gone now. Well said. Great ending. Uh, like I said, the last half hour, I think, really, really cooks. Seeing, like, the... We kind of, like, danced around it. Starting the movie with that first 16 minutes, basically showing you the final fo- final few hours in the timeline of the movie, showing you that first and then coming back to it, is I, I, I'm, I'm in awe of that decision, and I'm in awe of how well it works. And I'm in awe of everything about this screenplay. And as I kind of said earlier, it's, I think, one of the best written movies of the 21st century. It's it's insanely, insanely good. Um, what, what else do you guys want to say about it? Ken, what else do you want to say about Michael Clayton? It is a much, much deeper film. than It's a much deeper film than you probably think on first watch. This is not a film you can yes, sit and watch once agree. and really capture everything the film is trying to say or show you. That's the other thing. Show. This film, this film is is a masterclass in how to tell a story. It's there's not a lot of exposition. There's not a lot of explaining. It shows you everything it you need to hand. know. It doesn't does not exactly. hold your hand. Yeah, it's fantastically, fantastically written film from beginning to end, and it's satisfying. Even though it's it doesn't satisfying. like Michael yeah. Clayton. Yeah, there's a question. What is he? What? what who is he? We don't. We still don't really know because now what's he going to be? What's what's going to become of him? We don't know. It's not really a happy ending for him, but it's a satisfying ending because he did, he did have his reckoning and he did kind of come out as the savior in the end. It did come at his own, a certain sacrifice, major sacrifice to himself for sure. Uh, but he was tested and for a moment there, he almost failed the test. But through some kind of, of, of higher power, some kind of like that moment of seeing the horses, that's it. He's just got this moment of... Well, we also... There's also a bit of a head fake, because like when he confronts Karen Crowder, we don't know what he what his intention is there. We don't know if he's actually failed the test. We don't know if he's actually getting $10 million out of out of her to, to pocket him for himself. Well, he tells her... Until he pulls out the phone. You try to kill until me? Until he pulls out the phone. I'm the guy you yeah. buy off. Because literally, yeah. he was just bought fixer. off. Yeah. He was literally yeah. just bought off. And he was bought off for 80k by his own law firm, and now he's looking for 10 million from her. But he's not actually; he's actually doing the right thing. But we don't know that until he reveals he's doing the right thing. He's a he's ahead of us in that moment, to use TJ's term again. You know, uh, warning for for language again. But yeah, there's the there's the moment where he just kind of he smirks at her and says, "You're so fucked. You're so fucked. <laughs> it's such. A, Do I look like I'm negotiating? That's the most satisfying of endings, really." It's also the most expressive Clooney is in the entire movie. Yes, yes. In, the, in the whole movie. He crescendos yes. there. Absolutely. And he finishes, yes. how does he finish? By quoting Arthur. I'm Shiva, the god of I'm death. I'm Shiva, god of to death. Answer, to answer away. Don Jeffrey's question of who is this guy. Once again, another, once again, another sort of like mythical theological reference, right? I'm right, all over this. exactly. Um, also, just again, enough can't be said for like the the... The dialogue and uh, the blocking of that scene as Jeffries is following him and becoming blurry and blur in the background. 
is it, it's just so satisfying to yeah. see the executive, mm-hmm. the guy who drafted the memo, who knows absolutely that his who signed the memo, yes, yeah. that his company mm-hmm. is guilty. This is the guy responsible for the memo, and he's he thinks he's the authority. He thinks he's completely the authority. He's got the cops walking towards him, not even questioning why the police are even here. I'm going to use them as security. There's the guy. Get him out of here. Like, come on, get him out of here. And it's just so satisfying to watch him be so confused. Like, what's going on? While she's molted, yep. she is literally molted into the floor. Because every- she's fallen to her yes, knees. Everything yeah. has, mm-hmm. her, her entire world has come apart. I think it's important to consider the directing because this is another, this is a movie that doesn't have that flashy directing that a lot of people would be like, oh, wow, it's so well directed. I think it is very well directed. There's two parts where, it breaks the 180 degree rule that I'm not quite sure why it does that. Um, so eh, not so wild the, about those. In the holding, in the hold, in the holding cell with Arthur, right? Is well, that one I, I think that one makes sense. But there's there's one that happens in the bar after Arthur's death that just felt kind of a little clunky to me. Um, but it's like one you know one editing choice. Uh, one of the things I think should be said about how well it's directed. You know, one thing you guys said was how subtle it is, how much it works also as a thriller. But Alexander Payne has said before that like. 80 or 90% of my job is done after I've cast the movie. This movie is incredibly well cast. Oh, yeah. um, you know, the yeah. four, the four principles that we've mentioned, but also, you know, the, the loan shark, uh, Merritt Weaver, Dennis O'Hare, um, Ken Howard, his, his, both of his brothers, like just look like no offense to them, but like non movie star types. And they look like these kind of, like Philadelphia Queens neighbors, boys. boys from Queens. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I just think it's a, it's a really, really well cast film, and that's part of. I agree. So a fun little just factoid or movie, a bit of movie trivia. His brother Timmy is played by David Lansbury, nephew of Angela Lansbury. I just, I just love that fact. Oh wow! Yeah, just Mrs. Lovett herself. Just a little character, Mrs. Potts, exactly. As well, yeah. Well, murder. She wrote. She's very like. There's a connection here with murder, right? There you go. Question. Uh, why hasn't Tony Gilroy won any, done anything else, uh, directorial wise after this of note? He made a movie called Duplicity that I have barely heard of with Julie Roberts and Clive Owen. Um, he directed The Bourne Legacy, which was the failed attempt to hand the Bourne franchise to Jeremy Renner. And then he had uncredited, he was the director of the reshoots on Rogue One, which is a pretty good movie. But like, Watching this now, like I, I'm flabbergasted because this is this is a staggeringly good movie on the page, and like you just said, TJ, it's an incredibly well directed movie too. Like what what what's going on here? I, I get I get where that that question's coming from, but maybe one hit wonder, maybe. I mean, maybe he like this is the thing he really had to say, and he's clearly a good technician because he's still working. Um, so his craft yeah. of screenwriting is well tuned, but maybe this was like. The one thing he really this was his baby. To, to his credit, this is this same year, Born Ultimatum came out, which um, is also a pretty tightly, tightly written action. And again, it's a completely different film. It's totally full on action. And not to not to shit on the Gilroy family, but uh, Tony Gilroy's brother Dan Gilroy had it also had a you know good career as a screenwriter in the nineties and two thousands, and then had just a dynamite directorial debut with nightcrawler in 2014 and then since then 
since then hasn't really uh, f- you know cashed in on the promise of Nightcrawler, much like Tony Gilroy maybe hasn't cashed in the promise of Michael. Clayton. Nightcrawler is a Gilroy family movie because Tony. Pro- it is a Gilroy family. Tony movie, produced yes. it. Um, he may have even worked a little bit on the script. I don't know. John edited it, and then of course Dan is the director. Um, which also a staggeringly good movie. Yeah. Uh, as well. Um, that was not nominated for best picture, I'm, unfortunately. Yeah. It. it yeah, it's a little the, his last few Beirut was okay. Like you could kind of see if you I don't know if either one of you saw that movie with uh nope. sorry, John uh, Hamm. Tony wrote that. Correct. Tony he, wrote Beirut. He wrote right? it. He that film it. has got there are moments where you can see classic Tony Gilroy in it. For what it's worth, Rogue One is actually I mean, I know we don't want to get I think Rogue One's very I was gonna good. say we don't want to get into the I think it's very we don't necessarily want to jump into the franchise discussion for this year because does it doesn't it's not at play, but Rogue One is actually Someday we'll do someday we'll do nineteen seventy seven and we'll talk about Star Wars. Rogue One is one of the yeah. better of that of that of the Star Wars universe. I agree. And I agree. Tony Gilroy, it's widely believed he's actually uh quite a he, most responsible for directing that movie. Yeah. Arguably, because John Gil I believe his brother's yeah. the editor of that movie. And I don't know. Tony came in later. For example, I believe Tony filmed a lot of the action at the end, particularly the, in the there's a Darth Vader scene at the end that is a lot of critics praised the shooting of that scene, and that's Tony Gilroy. Yeah. Um, and yeah. then if, there are there are there are three credited editors on Rogue One, one of whom is John Gilroy. And I wonder if I wonder if he did mostly Tony stuff, and that was enough to get an editing credit. They so. came. My understanding again, I think they came in later too, so they may have one of the last um, they one of the yeah. last says on the final product. Yeah, which is why a lot of people unofficially give them quite a bit of credit for that movie yeah, um, yeah. but that said i mean it's kind of i don't know i know no offense tj i know you love this movie but like early on he's got the devil's advocate in armageddon which i mean as far as from a writing standpoint dingers <laughs> both of them i like to imagine that he wrote the line god is an absentee landlord i'm a fan of man um <laughs> Okay, let's 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 let's. Okay, so we wrapped up Michael Clayton. Let's talk about the Oscars real quick. Um, I set off Mike and TJ. You kind of alluded last week in our discussion of Juno. Um, having rewatched Michael Clayton three times in the span of a few months, and also reading the screenplay, um, and then watching Juno a couple times in the last couple months, um, I am livid that Juno won Best Original Screenplay. With all respect to Diablo Cody, whose work I actually admire quite a lot. Um, I'm I'm livid that this lost to Juno, and TJ, you said off mic that that was your claim in 2008, and now you're being you know vindicated with that take. Is that is that you that accurate? I'm often a man ahead of my time. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, well, you, I will be appreciated so, years down the road. Not not to spoil the 2007 recap episode, but uh, Juno has softened a bit in my esteem in the last 15 years revisiting it for the first time since 2008 basically um if it's not clear from this conversation michael clayton has risen immensely immensely since the first time i saw it uh in 2007 2008 there's there's no I doubt that's, that's across the board. looking yeah. looking back at that i mean this was a year this is one of those years where the adapted screenplay was the heavy hitters that was where all the attention was focused on no country you had no country atonement. and um yes. away from her there will be blood there will be blood um yeah. atonement and um diving bell and butterfly diving bell yeah. and the butterfly it was a strong strong group over in the adapted category that is very strong original looking back on it yeah michael clayton is it's really hard to argue that Michael Clayton is not head and shoulders the above these other. The clear winner! The clear winner! 
Ah, yeah, this is not as, this, ah. is, this site is not as close to fight. I mean, you got Ratatouille is is actually pretty well written. Lars and the Real Girl is an interesting. It's an I love Ratatouille. It's an yeah. it's an original uh, script, and then you got Tamara Jenkins. It is good. Yeah, I like that. You I got like Tamara Jenkins with the Savages, but Michael Clayton is way ahead of all of these others. And um, uh, elsewhere in the categories, as I alluded at the top of the show, um, George Clooney. This is maybe some of his best work, but you got Dion Day Lewis in that category, giving what I think might be the best performance anyone's ever given in a movie. Not to spoil our There Will Be Blood discussion coming in a few weeks, but that sucks for George Clooney. And then Tom Wilkinson, who I absolutely love in this. And like, if if I watched this without context, I would just be like really, really questioning how he didn't win an Oscar. And it's because he was up against Javier Bardem and No Country for Old Men. Again, one of the, one of the better on-screen performances I've ever seen in my life, personally. Um... Tilda Swinton had she she won. This was the only Oscar this movie won. Was Tilda Swinton supporting actress? She had an easier path, I'd say, with with respect to you know young Shersha Ronan and Ruby D in American Gangster, Amy Ryan in Gone Baby Gone, a movie I really like and a performance I really really like, and Cate uh, Blanchett and I'm Not There, which is a movie I've not seen. I would have personally I would have voted for Cate Blanchett and I'm Not There, but I'm I'm, I, I'm really not surprised to hear on, you say that. I'm really high yeah. on that film. You guys are. You guys are both Todd Haynes heads, right? I, I, I'm perfectly fine with Tilda Swinton here. I don't know that I – I may have stuck with Tilda Swinton. I'll be honest. Looking back on this, it's it's rare that you get a performance like Tilda Swinton's, which is like – this is lowercase – this is lowercase A acting here. This is quite. I was thinking subdued. the same thing. I'm pretty thrilled that even if she would not have been my number one choice necessarily, I'm pretty thrilled that like this – she doesn't have a screaming moment in um, retrospect amy, <laughs> amy ryan in gone baby gone seems like in looking back on it now that's the big acting performance out of these that mm-hmm. group yeah mm-hmm. and i think i think if that movie had gotten more academy attention outside of that single category she might have run away with it but that was the only category Correct. that that movie broke in which it's interesting i think that you know ben affleck eventually did become Something of an Academy darling. He did win Best Picture uh, with his third movie. I think had he made Gone Baby Gone, like maybe as like his second or third movie, it probably would have got more Academy attention. Maybe Amy. I Rachel like all. I, I really like know, all three of those films. It is. It is a, worth noting. Who's, I love the town. The town rules. I love who the town. those one yeah. of the uh, who was one of the three producers along with Ben Affleck to win for Argo. Uh, George Clooney. George Grant Heslov. Oh, yes. yeah, yes. Grant, Grant Heslov. I do love that. I do love that when when they accepted the Best Picture Oscar, Grant Heslov was the first to the mic, and he said his little spiel, and he made a joke how he was the the the, the three best looking guys because <laughs> it's Grant Heslov with George Clooney and Ben Affleck. <laughs> Grant Heslov's a weird looking dude. If you guys don't know who Grant Heslov is, and George Clooney and Ben Affleck, if you're listening, you're trying to picture pretty. Grant Heslov. He's the he is the uh, undercover agent posing as a cameraman in True Lies. There's a James Cameron reference. You're not going to get many of those from me, but he's also a National Enquirer reporter in The Birdcage, which is that's right, that's movies. correct. You just want to run through all of Grant Heslov's filmography <laughs> in the Michael Clayton episode? <laughs> Good use for time. Uh, what are the other what – what are the boilerplate questions we talk about with the in, in terms of the Oscars? Like, did this – Did it know, deserve, deserve its – nomination? Yeah. Right. Which, fuck, yes, it did. This movie is outstanding. Um, it's – it's uh, again, not to spoil our recap and not to spoil our next two episodes, but I'm not sure I can think of a year where there's five Best Picture nominees and three of them – are five out of five for me this mm. because this is a five out of five we'll me. talk about a lot of films when we get to the um 
when we get to our roundup, I guess, because there are there's mm-hmm. a lot going on this year, and there's at least one or two films that aren't even nominated, aren't even in the discussion here. Yes, that said, 2007 is just a banger it, year. Yes, it yes. is a little. It's a it's a little crazy. To look back, like Michael Kate Clayton. You cannot. You you. It's probably easy to do, but you cannot underestimate just how important the editing is in this film. And it yeah, it was not a film that got a lot of editing love. It was not popping up. No, um, did not. It didn't get nominated at the Oscars or several of the other awards circuits that year. I have a complicated answer to that question in the sense that, yes, I think it's an excellent film. I think it's better, excuse me, than most films, again, that are nominated in any given year. Because this year Mm -hmm. is so good, if I made a top five list, I don't know that it would be in my top five. Just because that year is so good. If I'm being completely honest, if I'm being completely honest, I might agree with you it, and if it's if it's in my top five it's number five i was gonna say if i'm making a list we'll, let's we'll get there because i do want to have we're gonna have no question well, I, 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 think, I was just saying that as a way to answer the question with a yes and no um it's it's it, there's the point is though it's it could i think it's borderline like it's there there's a lot of great movies though this year yeah um, but another thing that i kind of like alluded earlier and again not to spoil the next two episodes but like the next two movies we're talking about nominated for best picture 2007 i've i have a deep relationship with both of them and i've i i return to them both a lot and this is one that i have not returned to since it came out basically up until the last few months and like i'm kicking myself i mean i don't think this is good at i don't think this is quite as good as the next two movies we're going to talk about but like it's worth like like ken does watches every you know three four years i should also be doing that and i plan to do that from now on moving forward ken do you think you, you said you think this deserves its best picture nomination i do i i think it, i think yeah. it's fine there i'm if you're asking me what i have voted for it i don't know that's something we're going to talk about like i said for the roundup because i'm i have to think about it, all the movies that came out this year um but the fact that it's there doesn't upset me at all like i'm i'm not upset with it being there would this be nominated today? And I kind of boiled my take earlier. I, I think that this movie would be hailed as God's gift if this came out today because they don't make this kind of movie anymore. Um, so I would hope that this would be nominated today. What do you guys think? TJ, what do you think? I think that's a good answer. Uh, this movie doesn't get made today, yeah. so no. But, no, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, I, I do. I, yeah, I think that's a good answer. I'd definitely add to that. Ken? Yeah, I think if it gets made today... I'd... Yeah, because it's kind of like I said, it's we talked about earlier. It's an it's an adult film, which is becoming rarer and rarer. Again, that's a film directed <laughs> towards adults, not to pornography. <laughs> yeah, I think I think this is one of those token like, well, we got to put the smart film that everybody that, that all of this, the all of the savvy film watchers and the people who want to sound smart, they're going to probably toss this in and nominate it as well because it's going to be a critic starling. Certainly in today's day and age, Michael Clayton is going to be like a nomad land aroma uh critics are going to eat this up and and just hail it for the artistic entry that it is yeah that's a good, a good i should say that the uh the critical consensus on rotten tomatoes where they kind of like sum up what the critics blurbs are it says uh michael clayton is one of the most sharply scripted films of 2007 with an engrossing premise and faultless acting director tony gilroy succeeds not only in capturing the audience's attention but holding it until the credits roll which i think is a good a good pitch. I think that's accurate. Um, I think the last thing I usually ask is how this compares to like other movies that we've seen that have been nominated for Best Picture. Um, I think this is really good, and I think it's like as good as as most Best Picture nominees I've seen, better than most Best Picture nominees I've seen. Um, 
again, it's in a really, 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 really competitive year. So it's it's wild to me that as much as I love this movie, it's not to spoil the ranking at the end, but it's number three, <laughs> you know? So, um, but this is great. And this is better than most Best Picture nominees I've seen, I think. TJ, what do you think? Same. Um, I think yeah. any given year, it's, you know, one or two out of the 10 for me. So I agree. Yeah. Any given year, it's one or two out of the 10. And the fact that it's not in this year just speaks to how good the next two movies are. Uh, Ken, what do you think? I, I agree with both of you. I, Michael Clayton is, uh, it, it's kind of suffers from having been, uh, released in a year that is rich, yeah. rich it with just, great It ran into some trains, man. It ran headfirst in some trains, um, the Oscars. But yeah, overall, this is, this is certainly like, yeah, this is in the conversation for among the best of that decade for sure. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, if there's anybody out there like me who saw this when it came out and thought, yeah, that was pretty good. I liked that, which is exactly how I responded to it. Um, check it out again. Give it another shot. Uh, hopefully this episode encouraged you to do so because this, this movie's outstanding. And it's not like immediately obvious how outstanding it is. I think is at least it wasn't. Unfortunately, me. this um, is. But it's really, really good. Unfortunately, it's one of those situations where, uh, yeah, you have to invest a little in this kind of movie. But if you do. Yeah. Uh, I think we all are in agreement. The payout is is really fantastic. It's satisfying. So TJ, yes. Next week, next week, what's on the agenda? I believe our next episode is No Country for Old Men. <sighs> A long sigh, exhale into the microphone from Josh. Um, I'll just leave it at that. Next week, we're talking about No Controlled Men. That's all I'm going to say. Um, but I do have a big smile on my face. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you for listening to our Michael Clayton episode. Please subscribe or whatever. I don't know. Whatever whatever people do. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week for No Controlled Men. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye.